0: Welcome everyone
1: to the Two Real Cinema Club. My name is Andres Lorente, and I am James Rizikum. And uh, every episode on the Two Real Cinema Club, we watch two movies: an old movie and a new movie. We try and uh, try and connect the dots. I was trying to think of a, uh, a good image uh, for that. Um, there used to be a, a famous advert for um, for lavatory paper. What do you call it in America? <laughs> um, bathroom tissue. What's What's the name? What's, what's the polite yeah, word? I've for? heard bathroom tissue, but that's the polite word. We say toilet paper. Toilet paper. Okay, that's what we call it. So there was a famous advert, like in the 1980s, yeah. for toilet paper, where they would, um, they would get a puppy and they would tie like a roll of toilet paper around its tummy and then get it to run all around the house. And uh, imagine, imagine a puppy doing that, and you've tied a bit of string around it, and it's running around an old blockbuster video. Yes. Making connections between different DVDs as they fall off the shelf. That's what our podcast is, in a nutshell.
0: I- I'd never thought of it that way, but uh, now I- <laughs> can't get that image out of my mind yeah
1: there's probably a reason why you've never thought of it that way i don't
0: think we had that advert in the states but uh it's effective yeah we were we're gonna unreal (laughs) we're gonna unspool the toilet paper for you folks that's what this podcast is about
1: release the puppy
0: and uh if you haven't heard of us yet or your friends haven't heard of us make sure that uh, you spread the word that the two real cinema club is on twitter at two real cinema club at twitter.com we're on Instagram at Two Real Cinema Club at Instagram.com. You can read the blog at Two Real, two real Cinema club, uh, dot com. You can email us at Two Real cinema club at Gmail.com. Tell everyone you know that you can find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. And. On YouTube. And on the YouTube. Yeah. You can probably get that that advertisement about uh, the puppy running around with the toilet on spooling <laughs> on YouTube too. I lo- that's what I love about YouTube. I like looking at old, I love looking at the old commercials on YouTube. That is a, a pastime of mine. Hmm. Very nostalgic. Uh, so today on the show, we're doing a deep dive <laughs> oh. <laughs> with uh, James Cameron. <laughs> um, we're looking at his new film, Avatar: The Way of Water. Um, and comparing that to 1989's *The Abyss*, I like to
1: call this the James Cameron the abysmal *Avatar* show. Oh! That feels like you're giving away the punchline too early. <laughs> Sorry. Um, well, well, we should, well, let's let's start let's start with the new *Avatar* yeah um, film. So, uh, um, which as of today, I looked it up. Um, currently, uh, box office gross is 1.708 billion. <laughs> So wait, um, that's close
0: to two billion. Is that what you're saying? Two billion. That's to
1: close. It? To, yeah, it's difficult to see it not crossing two billion oh at this my point. God. Yeah, absolutely. Was that pounds or dollars? <laughs> that's, do- that's dollars. That's That's dollars. That's yeah, the international currency of cinema. Okay. That's dollars. Wow. Um, and uh, the way I I um I had to write down in my notebook like a little summary of of uh, if I was advertising the movie and the little summary in my mind was that it, it's uh, it's the film with more very thin almost naked teenagers than you'll see at the Paris fashion show. Um, so so uh, we're going to change the format very slightly. We're going to have a quick synopsis of the movie, um, and then we will talk about it afterwards. So let me tell you the synopsis. So we are back to Pandora, which is the alien planet uh, from the original Avatar movie from 2009. It's been about 15 years or so after the humans were seen off at the end of the first movie. And uh, so we have uh, alien-navi-retro-conversion-human hybrid Jake Sully, played by Sam Worthington, and his wife uh, Natiri, played by Zoe Saldana. Is it Saldana, Saldania? How, how shall I pronounce that? I have a question. I think it's Saldana. Saldana, because I, I think she has the curly thing over the end. I should know what that's called. That's
0: called a tilde, and if she does, then she, she's Saldania. yeah.
1: Saldana. Okay, well, maybe, maybe I'm getting it wrong. I don't know. Okay, I'm, I'm going to go with Saldana because that's what you told me. So so the two of them, they have a family now. They have three children of their own um, and they also have uh, another girl, Kiri, who is immaculately conceived by Signe Weaver's character uh, at the end of the last movie and they also kind of adopted Spider who is a human teenager. So they kind of have these five kids in a kind of knockabout family. But... Um, After these 15 years, the human forces return. Uh, They burn their way back onto the planet. They turn the forest into lava. And this time they're back playing a different game. Jake's old nemesis, Colonel Quaritch, from the first movie, who was killed at the end of the first movie, spoilers, has been reincarnated using his old uploaded memories, stuck into a new Avatar body. And he wants revenge. Uh, So he captures uh jake and terry's children and although the kids escape it's clear the family must go on the run so they flee to a reef off the coast in a kind of how i spent my summer vacation sort of scenario uh so they spend some time at the beach the adults learn how to fish and ride sea creatures the teenagers fight and fall in love and they befriend an outcast space whale called Pyocan. meanwhile the humans who've come back to the planet are harvesting the whales Moby Dick style, and Quaritch, the bad guy, commandeers a whaling vessel to search the reef for Jake and the family, with the reluctant help of Spider, who is uh, the uh, the human teenager. Eventually, the family is found, and the fight is on. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think I would say oh, the yeah. fights, wouldn't you? It's more than one the fights. Many, many fights. One, oh, one long God. extended fight. Exactly. Well, I mean, it's like there's, like this there's, there's three very clear acts in this movie isn't there so we you know, we start up with the normal world we have yeah. the kidnap of the children as the kind of inciting incident you know the start of the adventure then they go off to the reef um for like a really long second act you know and they have tests and allies and enemies but really that this really long i was trying to explain it to a friend it's like a 90 minute training montage yeah um and and then finally it all comes together for the final hour we have a third act with like a final confrontation it's a really kind of straightforward hero's journey shaped movie and for the amount of story that it tells Mm -hmm. it's long I think it's too long to justify you know this length because the movie is three hours and ten minutes three hours and twenty minutes something like that yeah it's it's long that you know the the standard joke, which I've told many people, is the reason that it's called the Way of Water is because the only thing you'll be able to think about for about the second and third hours of the film is passing water. <laughs> <laughs> which is, did, your, did your bladder survive the film? I did
0: surprisingly. Yeah. I've been re- I, nothing wrong with your prostate. I underestimate my bladder. I always think I'm going to have to go, and then I don't have to. So what i thought of immediately was uh, i'm going to call these these cameron films intentionally epic he's just uh, dying to make epic films and the epic films of the golden age had an intermission right you'd go in there was yeah. actually a, a prelude sort of there's a piece of music that started before the credits even came on hour and a half in or so you'd have an intermission people would go out pass water buy treats at the at the popcorn counter or whatnot and then you get the next part of the film and you don't have that anymore which is very funny to me that if you're going to make a film that long um you you must expect people uh to leave at some point so it's it's kind of this admission that it doesn't matter if you miss five or ten minutes uh, on his Uh. epics because you're not going to miss anything and you don't and he he's in these two films I just noticed so many detours and I'm glad you mentioned the water training montage because that takes a long time and <laughs> it gives us some important information. We realize that the kids are going to have to learn how to breathe underwater and, and there are going to be some lifestyle changes but it's
1: long and it's a detour and he has a lot of them in these films. It, I'm surprised that... You're seeing as cinema is largely a mechanism for selling popcorn. I'm surprised that the exhibitors haven't put their foot down and said, yeah. you know, there must be an intermission because we could sell more more pop and and uh, and uh, popcorn." Yeah. When I had to go to the loo about <laughs> halfway through, uh, we went to see this film at, at the at the BFI IMAX in oh. in Waterloo, which yeah. um, nine o'clock in the morning, which is such a great time to see a film. Um, cinema was pretty much packed. Wow. Um, and we had seats right down at the front. So I had to walk up to the back to go to the loo and I walked past every row. And even though I thought I had chosen a boring part of the movie um, to go and quickly pop out to the loo, as I walked up those stairs and past every row, every other person in the film uh, was absolutely captivated. Oh! <laughs> there was no one glancing at their phone or chatting to their neighbor or rummaging for chocolates in their bag. Absolutely everyone was completely in the moment. Audiences. Mm. Um you know, love this movie. I think there is a reason why it's taken 1.7 billion dollars already. People are really enjoying it. Yeah, I, I I I sort of get
0: that. It's not my kind of film, so I, I won't be too judgmental if possible. Although I will be later. I think <laughs> yeah. um, it's beautiful. I mean, the technology t- t- technology going into it and the the accomplishment of just making this film is incredible, and it does look really interesting. I find it disturbing looking in so many ways, and I love your. Um, uh, description of uh, the, the Parisian, uh, you know, fashion walk uh, or the fashion show runway. Because, um, yeah, everyone's really thin. This is not a f- film for very, Americans. Un- yeah. Very th-
1: uncomfortably thin. Yeah. Uh,
0: it almost makes me feel like we're going to see- start seeing a lot of these stretching surgeries where people are made eight <laughs> and ten feet tall. So all that body fat just stretches out and makes us look better than we really are. <laughs> um, but it, it, it's it is. It's wondrous, I guess. Right. I mean, it's, you're seeing these new worlds and they're very well appointed and it's all very lush. Um, I just I, I don't think there's a whole lot of story there. So I, I, I'm going to guess that a lot of those people, even though you caught them in a good moment when they were all cheery and paying attention, I think there's a lot of boredom in this film because it's, it's just three hours. And the I think the current human attention span really can't take three hours of this or anything for that matter. So I, I still think it's a massive mistake to not focus on making a lean story that really holds people's attention for an hour and 45. I think you could do this in less than two hours, but three hours yeah. and 15 minutes or whatever it
1: was is excessive. It's um, interesting that not only is it, you know, an extremely long film, but it also somehow manages to encompass every other film from, David, from James Cameron. Oh, that's a mistake I'm going to make a lot. Not David Cameron. Oh, this no. film was not made by the broadly unpopular Conservative <laughs> Prime Minister from the UK, David Cameron. It was made by James Cameron, yeah. somebody completely different, and not even the brother of David Cameron. <laughs> um, it's, it, it contains, it feels like it contains like a little pricey of all of James Cameron's previous movies. I started making yeah. a list yeah. because like early in the early in the film you have the bridge explosion from True Lies. You have mm-hmm. the exoskeletons from Aliens. Yeah. This kind of this notion of of Quaritch having um, having his kind of consciousness transferred into this sort of you new know, new avatar robotic body feels like a plot point from Terminator yeah. movies. Yep. Um, we have this this idea of dragging um, unconscious people underwater from the abyss. We have you know an enormous ship that rolls all the way over one hundred and eighty degrees from Titanic. Basically, yeah. it, it contains a little bit of every other James Cameron yeah. film, all kind of squished into one mega feature. It's a little bit like. Uh, when I was a boy we used to have these books called I Spy Books. Sure. Where um it would be like the I Spy book of Garden Birds and you'd have to tick tick off whenever you saw one. There should be an I Spy book of James Cameron in this movie.
0: I, I'm glad you mentioned that for a couple of reasons. Number one, I would like to see a David Cameron film next before seeing another James Cameron <laughs> film. Um, <laughs> but um you know there's this theory of there are only what seven to twelve great plots and great stories and then just we, we we retell them. And countless authors over the centuries have done the same thing. Um, I think for James Cameron, he's really proving that idea true, is that this man has maybe one or two stories. And you're absolutely right that he almost cannibalizes his own previous work to create new things. Um, there's there's nothing new in this. Uh, we're probably going to have some, a big call to the cliché squad at some point because if this is just cliché upon cliché. <laughs> already a Yeah. Cliché upon cliché. Um, so I agree with you entirely. and I, You are obviously far more familiar with this work than I am. But, yeah, I saw all of those things in there. And it just makes me feel like, I mean, even watching The Abyss, there's not a tremendous amount of um,
1: a difference between those two films. Not enough, anyway. I did come away asking myself. And this is such a cliché screenwritery question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I asked myself, whose story is this? Because um, I came away kind of thinking, well, it, you know, it's probably supposed to be Jake Sully's character. He's like the main character. He's like, you know, the guy on the poster. He's the the center of the story. But really, he seems to spend most of the mov- movie as a kind of secondary dad in the background kind yeah. of character. Um, interestingly, I, you know, he's he's not even deeply moved by the death of a major character towards the end of the film. Mm-hmm. Um and I feel like, you know, the main driver of the story, the people who own the story are the kids. But then which one? Is there one kid who owns the story? It's like this kind of it's like um it's like a gang like the famous 5 go to pandora it's like a block of teenagers having a kind of teenager adventure when they go away for the summer and yeah. they meet new people and learn new skills um I, I feel like well if if that really is going to be you know their story could do with a little bit more focus and impetus rather than being a you know a, a, a bit of a kind of collage of teenage experiences
0: I agree. I mean, I, th- I, am I'm, I'm going to say I think it's uh, the son Loak's story more than anyone else because he seems to be the, he seems to be in all the scenes or many, many of the scenes anyway, and he's someone who has like troubles or, or uh, problems to, to address from the the first act from the very beginning all to, all the way to the end, and he has these guilt issues and also these, um, uh, I guess the, he's the re- rebellious son uh, compared to his older brother. So I, I felt it was more his story, but honestly i thought that the was, it, was it the name quaritch quaritch his yeah. his character seemed to be the real driving force in terms of the theme There was a lot of sort of um male toxicity in this film uh, and <laughs> poor fathering and just terrible decisions and uh american military several times just coming down and wiping out rape, uh, pillaging and just setting fire to places or bulldozing entire forests and things like things like that so i felt like it was kind of his it was it I think it was a revenge story. As far as I could tell, he was just upset that, um, but he'd been killed in the the airplane crash uh, in Pandora, and that, that and I don't remember the the original film very well because it's been twelve years, and I'm
1: not going to watch it again. Honestly, I'm, I think I think he is he is killed by an arrow by by Teeru. yeah, exactly. But yeah, so there's like yeah, this big fight, isn't there? And he's I, in this kind of big exo exoskeleton suit. Yeah, I mean, he kills can, him with an arrow. I,
0: I really think that this is just a revenge film. Mm ultimately, it was this sort of revenge story, but you can't—he couldn't exact entire revenge because his own son or what he could perceive as his son was sort of in the way. So there were—there's this development of some sort of sentimentality or feeling or emotion for uh, a a possible relative. Um, And then the other thing that really bugs me is that, you know, you've gone up the line trying to take out one antagonist and then the next, and you're trying to get all the way up to Quaritch and then Spider. Do we— Maybe I shouldn't reveal that.
1: Yeah, no, no, no. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I think, I think it's... We're in spoiler territory now, yeah,
0: Spider yeah. has a chance to really just let Quaritch go and uh, become part <laughs> of the universe, let's say. Um, but Quaritch escapes and he just... You assume he's going to become an antagonist in yet another Avatar <laughs> film, <the> film.
1: <laughs> where he
0: could have been dispensed with easily in this film. So then what? The next one's also going to be about revenge? It's just... It's, it's kind of weak storytelling considering you've spent... 12 years or more on this film um, and you've had plenty of chances to to write something good um, and I think we'll have to talk about what Cameron's real intentions are here but I think you know this this film feels like a commodity it's a follow-up on a previous film and it's just setting up another film so I think it's just and it's heck it's a successful commodity at 1.7 billion dollars already. Um, But in terms of like storytelling, I think here we are, we're both struggling with it. I mean, there are themes of fatherhood in there. There are themes of environmentalism, sort of. You're right. Between us, we've uh, put out at least three possibilities of male characters who are uh, the owners of the story. Although Kiri could also be one, and she's an odd character because she's Sigourney Weaver, but she's not Sigourney Weaver. And <laughs> yes. one, at one point, she's hovering in this tank, sort of pregnant looking, and uh, and then all of a sudden, Sigourney Weaver's hugging Kiri later on. And then I was shocked to find out, oh, that's Sigourney Weaver's voice the whole time of yeah. that character. So it's just, it was, it's, and she's a main character in some ways, too. So it it is disturbing that we can't, between
1: the two of us, really name, you know, the person whose story it is. I mean, you are right that the film spends so much energy setting up the next episode, a little bit like it's, you know, it's almost like episode two of a TV series that um, by the end of the movie, we are in largely the same place that we were at the start of the movie. Mm-hmm. You know, maybe, maybe we, you know, we've lost one or two characters and... Um, you know some people have learned how to swim But you know otherwise <laughs> we're, kind of, you know, we're kind of largely in the same place With the same people yeah. I'm not very much resolved You don't really feel like anybody has learned anything It's interesting what you were talking about The themes of fatherhood Because it's a very peculiar kind of fatherhood yeah. In this film mm-hmm. It strikes me as it's like It's like a sort of 1960s fatherhood I, I, In the UK it seems very unusual When you see children call their father Sir is that something that still happens in the US, or is that something which you know only happens in you know nineteen sixties movies and not the real world?
0: Yeah, it's definitely dated. Uh, among military families, it might be a bit more common, but it's
1: dated. You know, my tradition is to somehow turn the two real cinema club into the two real book club. I did read a book again for this this week's pod, <laughs> so I read I read The Futurist by Rebecca Keegan, which is a a, a fairly um, hagiographic biography of. Uh, James Cameron, but I thought I'd read that just to find out a little bit about his upbringing to see yeah. whether um, the upbringing that we see um, for the boys for uh, Netiam and Loak in the in the film is similar to his upbringing, his his life in uh, with his brother uh, when he was a boy. So he he um, James Cameron grew up in suburban Canada, really near Niagara Falls. I mean, his mother was in the Canadian Women's Army Corps. Um, and his brother tells this little story at the beginning of of um, the book, the Futurist. Where he says that their father would tell him, "If you mess up, I'll take you to the woodshed." Yeah. And he was pretty sure we didn't even have a woodshed, but but somehow this this kind of this threat was like you know, enough to frighten them into the straight and narrow. Um, and so I think what we're seeing here is James Cameron's own boyhood, you know, but not really a very identifiable or um, understandable um, parenting uh, portrayal. For most of the rest of the audience, I think anybody who's under 50 years old will find it difficult to recognize this kind of parenting, which means the whole movie kind of, I agree, it feels dated, doesn't it?
0: Yeah. And I think it it does take us back to your original uh, pointing to uh, Sully, Jake Sully, as the the character who's supposed to carry this film, because he says, I think it's right around the midpoint of the film, I just want to keep my family safe. That's what a father does. You get these voiceover once voiceovers once in a while from him sort of telling his story. Um, and it, it sort of, the film begins with him doing a voiceover where he sort of discusses how all the children were born and sort of catches you up to date and what's been going on in 15 years or so. Um, and you know, it, and that includes taking a family to a new world and sort of almost becoming immigrants to this new place, this new part of Pandora and reestablishing a family in a new environment. So it, it is kind of about fire fatherhood and Sully, and that is kind of the central of the film, but. It gets lost. A lot of stuff gets lost in this film, I think. I'm not convinced that he is a particularly great father as well. He admonishes the kid, the boys, especially at certain times. And uh, he doesn't necessarily, you know, give a great example of fatherhood or,
1: or what the traditional man that he's looking for them to be um, actually is. And I don't feel like he's learned you know, any lessons about fathering uh, during the film either. It's not like he gets to the end of the film and realizes, oh, I should have done that. Yeah. Oh, now I've learned my lesson. He's kind of you know his kind of his look to camera at the end of the movie is oh now we're going to get revenge because you know Quaritch is going to come back and I can swim now that I is, mean yeah um, <laughs> yes, it's, it's all going to happen all over again yes exactly um, I thought it was interesting what you were saying earlier on about how vividly imagined um, the 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 film the the story world is yeah um, and it you know, and it is very vivid I, f- I find it kind of distractingly sort of bright actually it's like i feel like the whole movie is largely overlit which one way i think it compares unfavorably to the abyss i'm sure we'll take that yeah talk about that later on but mm. everything seems kind of incredibly bright and in technicolor yeah and i kind of came away thinking what well, perhaps there wasn't quite enough strangeness in the film like i feel like the sea creatures that we see in this film are just slightly different versions of Earth sea creatures. Yeah. Um just like the forest creatures. They're just, you know, slight variations on, yeah. on Earth forest creatures. I think I think you could watch a BBC documentary and see stranger, weirder, more bizarre sea creatures yeah. than you would in this movie. And and those creatures are real. I feel like it's a little bit of a missed trick. You know, we have these space whales, but they seem an awful lot like normal whales yeah. but with, you know, slightly more fins or something. And and it's even it's the same with um uh, with the the the, uh, the humanoid characters as well, so you know, um, Jake and Nateria and the family they go and live with these uh, Navi people who live in an archipelago, and uh, these people, well, they have kind of face tattoos, a lot like traditional Polynesian people might have. It reminded me a little bit. There was an old Rowan Atkinson sketch um, on TV many years ago where he plays an alien from a completely different planet, and he takes over the the television program, and he says, "Oh, this is this is a." you know, a a broadcast, my name is Thrag from the planet Zod or whatever. He says, my world is very different to yours. He says, "Um, we have no death, we have no gravity, and we have a different shaped gear stick on the mini metro. And, um, (laughs) you know, and that's kind of a little bit like what this feels like. It's like we've gone to somewhere, you know, very, very far from Earth and everything is completely different. But also, you know, they also have whales, but they have an extra fin, you know, and and another eye or something. I mean, it feels... um, i was a little bit disappointed at the, the, the sheer weirdness of it.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree with you entirely. and I think he's lost sort of in between uh, too much creativity and uh, too little creativity. I think you're right. There's not that much variation from what we have on Earth. I think he is trying to do some sort of environmentalist parable, um, but using um, a different planet. Um, but then you know any, he can have anything. James Cameron gives him the leeway to, he gives himself the leeway to do anything. He's got creatures that fly, then swim. He's got creatures that swim, then fly. He's got creatures that <laughs> swim and creatures that fly. He's just, he just—he just keeps <laughs> inventing all these things that you think he's going to use in some interesting way, but he doesn't really do anything that interesting. So I think he's just sort of lost within his own imagination and with his own creativity. And it's you know, it's excesses as well as, as its deficits, and it makes for a strange ride for sure. Um, but i I think uh, a bit of restraint just kind of zeroing in on that story i don 't think he 's that kind of um that kind of filmmaker so i don 't think he 'll ever do that but I think oh, that man. would that would help in terms of the story and and after watching both films, I felt like this is a guy who directs action but he doesn 't direct actors i mean I felt like there 's just his action stuff is is it's commendable, uh, especially in *The Abyss*. His his use of like following in, in narrow and enclosed spaces, a lot of camera work and camera movement, it's, it's fantastic. But in terms of actually telling or guiding actors in how to make his wooden dialogue ring or how to really get their characters rounded out, just I don't think he does that. I don't think that's who he is as a person or as a filmmaker.
1: Uh, maybe that's not what audiences want to see. Probably not, but I think
0: it would get this—whatever this, story he's trying to tell, I think it would come with um, a leaner storytelling and more believable dialogue and more believable characters and actors. Um, for me, one of the most metaphorical moments was um, I loved it when they're extracting this sort of life extension chemical from the brains of—I I guess I'll call them whales. They look just like yep. whales to me. Yeah. Um, And sort of wasting the rest of the animal. And I just figured, okay, this is like the the extension of the Avatar series. You can extend this into the future... Interminably, um, ad nauseum, uh, forever—they're just going <laughs> to keep using this life extension chemical to make more of these avatar films. Um, and it's—it's <laughs> it's also bizarre because it comes from um, Jermaine Clement is used. He's an actor who was in uh, Flight of the Concords and mm. uh, a film that I saw recently. He's a very comic, wonderful uh, New Zealand uh, Kiwi actor, um, but. It's just it's a serious role. He looks kind of older and bloated, probably intentionally. I don't know. But um, and it's a very straight role. And it's just it was very strange to see him in there. It's just the most peculiar bit of casting. And he's not in there a whole lot, maybe 10 minutes total uh, screen time. But um, it was and then he's taking this life extension chemical from the whale. And I thought, okay, I don't think we need more of this life. We don't need this extended. <laughs> um, so that was my metaphor. And then it seemed, this seems to be a, a theme with his films, just these deus ex machina moments at the at the end where there's some sort of divine intervention. We've been watching this film, thinking that these characters are going to solve their problems sort of on their own, and, and now some whale comes in and, and makes a defeat of the enemy possible. And it was just, it, it happens in The Abyss too. We'll get to that later, but...
1: To be fair, I thought that whale was the best character in the movie. Yeah, yeah, actually. yeah. Think, <laughs> oh, nothing
0: against the whale, but again, just how he's used as an actor, I guess. <laughs> um, and it's it's funny because he he goes past climax after climax after climax, and as a result, you know it climaxes become anti-climaxes when you've got 10 or 12 of them and they've all sort of gone to this point or the kids have been trapped the kids have been trapped again and guess what the kids got trapped again, <laughs> again. Um, it's just it's too much so a restraint is my biggest uh, takeaway is that uh, this film his other films don't have any restraint and i think they could use some but you're probably right because there are people who've just lost $1. <laughs> $1.
1: 1.7 billion dollars to this <laughs> filmmaker and people love it i guess Ah, uh, colonialism is one of those kind of themes that seems to keep coming up in the pod, isn't it? It's, yeah. it's kind of this post-colonial world. We're still trying to deal with um you know, the the wages of colonialism. Um and part of the cliches in this film, I think, are you know, Cameron trying to deal with a sort of post-colonial mindset. I mean, he comes across as somebody who, you know, has a lot of good intentions and he wants to make this environmental Point, yeah, and you know he probably has you know genuine deep sympathy with people who have been colonized or people who've been undermined and invaded and overturned. Um, but it feels like he sort of well-meaningly blunders into it, yeah. Um, you know, without enough self-reflection, I was a metaphor I was trying to think of. It's like he's like somebody who wants to save the rainforest, and somebody he thinks he does it. We'll put on a rock rock concert to save the rainforest. So to put on the rock concert, they bulldoze two thousand acres of rainforest and build a stadium. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, exactly. So, so, so like, having, trying to make a film where you are being sort of sympathetic to to the colonized and trying to talk about the balance of power, but somehow he's ended up with a white savior plot, isn't it? Yeah. So, you know, the only person who can save the Navi are oh, this human guy who, um, you know, he actually knows, you know, all about the planet and how to save them. Um, and in the same way, there's this kind of subplot that Kiri who's the the sort of the virgin birth girl who came out of uh Cigney Weaver, yeah. you know, she is, you know, half human, half navvy, but she is like the only character who can really communicate with the planet. Yeah. Um it feels you know it's just feels like it's like a, a constant stream of white people barging in saying, Yes, I know what these people need. I'll save you. Um, you know, again and again. Mm-hmm. I did look up the the the, uh, the credits for the writing. Interestingly, you know, for a, a story which is so simple Five people are credited with the story. Yeah, uh, which makes you think: Did they get like seven words each? Was it like a game? And uh, (laughs) like they each managed to contribute like you know one and a half sentences or something. So so James Cameron gets the credit, Um, also for the story credit and the script. It's Rick Jaffa and Amanda Silver. So they wrote Rise of the Planet of the Apes, and they wrote wrote, um, Jurassic World. There's kind of there's a kind of pattern forming here. Yeah, these are you know big movies about enormous. Um, events mm-hmm. rather than stories about characters. But then, in addition, there are story credits for Shane Salerno, who wrote Armageddon, mm-hmm. and uh, Josh Friedman, who wrote uh, Terminator: Dark Fate. So I think you know five people contributing to the story, but they are all people who are yeah. familiar with this kind of apocalyptic, massive world-ending event mm-hmm. movies. Yeah,
0: yeah, and that's probably why there's really nothing new in the story or in the script or in the film. Yep. Yep. Um, and I think I had read that, uh, I think this is the project, I think this is the Cameron project where uh, he had them all, they've sort of planned out all the films in advance, probably 10, 12 years ago. And then I think what happened was each, a couple of the writers are credited film by film. So they each had sort of one that was their personal baby more so than the others. Then ah. he comes in and writes, uh, cleans them up um, or dirties them up. I don't know what he does with his scripts, but... Oh boy! Um, so I, they're all sort of invested, but at the same time, they they are more invested probably in their own projects than the others. But I think he he had to keep their interest by saying, "Okay, we're going to plan out all these films together." And I think there's a, there's a series too, isn't there? I think there's a series on the. Oh, is that I, right? I, oh my goodness! I, I thought so. I thought there's some Adam. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you look at his credits, you know, he's got the eight or ten big films, but then he's written for countless video games and series that have gone to televisions based on the on the, on the films. So. Um, uh, there's just a lot of material out there and I, I do agree with you. I think it you're kind of getting the same people to rewrite the same stories and it just shows oof, obviously very little originality, but it's it's safe. The stuff is selling, yep. so I
1: guess it's safe, but it's not. All those movies made money, yep. Yeah. Yep. I've got I've I have one more question to ask, and then yeah. maybe we'll we'll phone the, the cliche squad. Okay. But my, my question to you is, um you know, maybe I've seen more James Cameron movies than you have. Yes. I did come away asking where are the jokes in this film? Oh, Usually yeah. there are a couple of good gags in a in a, a James Cameron film. I don't know whether you've seen Terminator 2. Um, there is a, a a gag in that film where um, uh, John Connor and the Terminator yeah. are kind of holed up in this industrial building. And John Connor turns up and he, kind of, he says uh, to the Terminator, oh, the police are here. And the Terminator says, um, how many? And John Connor says all of them. Yeah, and it's uh, you know, it's a lovely gag, yeah. and it's uh, such a good gag that I've seen that gag copied many oh. times in many other films. <laughs> it's a really, really uh, plagiarized gag. Yeah. Um. But the only joke I can remember from this movie is. Um, Towards the end, uh, when uh, it's the little girl, um, Took, I think, yeah. uh, she gets tied up once again. And she she says almost directly to the audience, I can't believe I'm tied up again. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Which, you know, it did make everybody laugh, but it also did feel a bit on the nose. You're very on the nose, yeah. <laughs> I don't, geez, I don't think I remember anything funny
0: intentionally. I think the, on the whale boat, there were a couple moments, though, the, the whalers were sort of a comic relief, I think, in a really sadistic way. I think they're... Right. Okay. I mean they were well, they It pretty bleak comic relief. Yeah, caricature ish. I mean I think they, like they're sort of uncouth whalers uh just out there doing their job. But um they're yeah, they're no and again, there you got Jermaine Clement who could be the comic relief. He could be a comic character and get a couple laughs in there, and he wasn't used in that way. So I was I was very yeah. confused by that. So yeah, I don't I don't I don't think there were any comic moments and I'm not you know, I'm not sure they would have come off anyway. So Yeah. Yeah. I'll I'll run one thing by you. Um, oh, yeah. there's something very I don't know, au courant about the film in terms of language. Are the kids in in the UK saying bro a lot? Bro, 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 this, bro, that, bro, how are you, bro? That sort of
1: stuff. Bro, basically well- I, I only talk to two kids yeah. on a regular basis, <laughs> okay. and, and neither of those two uh, say bro to me. Okay. I, yeah, I don't think so. Did you notice
0: this in the film, that the younger characters use bro constantly, which is a very American ah. teen thing right now, and they also use bitch quite freely in this film oh, as well. They? as Yeah, Blimey. yeah, um, Yo,
1: I did not notice that. And
0: it's just, it's, I don't know, it's so patronizing, I think. I mean, they're just, he's, I don't know when this script was Initially written, but somewhere in the last twelve years, like obviously this has come into the the lingua franca in the U.S. And I hear, yeah, I hear my stepchildren doing it. I hear the kids in school doing it all the time. Um, so there's a lot of bro, and to try and be up to the times, which is going to make it feel very, very dated very soon. Um, he has the kids uh. using bro constantly. That both uh, the 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 brothers as well as the uh, the. The kids in the other village, and in in, is it the Navi village as well, they're all using bro a lot. So it was just, it's just irritating. And I find it like, okay, I'm going to try and be hip and current by having the kids talk in this way that will probably be abandoned within the next couple of years when they start using, I don't know, <laughs> sis. Hey, sis, <laughs> sis, sis, sis. I don't know. Uh, but that bothered me quite a bit, um, as many did things did in this film so um, did you want to go to the
1: Cliché Squad or should we give them a week off oh, I, I I, I think they're all poised outside the door with that big <laughs> hammer to, to knock it off its hinges I think the Cliché Squad are here Cliché Squad They're
0: banging on our door Oh Cliché Squad so,
1: Thank you for coming uh, um, I, Oh my god we could do a whole yeah. we could do a whole pod on, on the Cliché Squad for this movie I think mm-hmm. but any favourites Um, The one that always irritates me is
0: inaccurate weapons. Despite the amazing technology out there, no one can kill anyone with
1: a bullet or a lightning bolt or anything at all. Uh, Except an arrow, which always kills. Whenever an arrow is fired, it's always a a definite kill. Absolutely deadly, yes. Uh, Yeah, so that would be my – that's probably my top cliché. How about yourself? What what comes to mind? Uh, So we've already already talked about children children characters just being tokens – like to be held hostage and traded, yeah. a little bit like you know some kind of trading game, or um, rather than you know real characters, it happens you know so much that the film literally comments on it. Yeah. But beside that, it it has to be, um, it's like the pouting, surly teenager, yeah, um, you know which which um, is, which fits so many of the kind of the key characters in this in this film. Mm-hmm. It's like they they suddenly they're all about the pouting, surly teenager, and then also the hysterical woman. Um, so you know Nateri is. I suppose she's supposed to be written as the emotional core of the family. Mm-hmm. But um you know, the way that her character comes across is it's just that she seems, you know, impetuous and hysterical when the men are all being kind of serious and stroking their chins and coming up with a plan. Um and it you know, it, it feels just uh oh, feels like another nineteen sixties kind of character somehow. Yeah. It's like, you know, a woman who's screaming her emotions out loud while the men are trying to you know properly load their guns. Yeah. <laughs>
0: how about um, i was going to say native medicine is always the best medicine oh yeah um, they're working on who's uh, someone's injured is it Loak is injured or something like that? So one of the kids is injured and uh, it's it's Carrie, isn't it i think is who, it Carrie? she yeah. has a seizure doesn't she that's, that's it they're trying to revive her and uh, then all of a sudden um you know the uh, oh who it's it's um it's kate winslet's character i think i forget her yeah. name she comes in and she has the, uh, the, uh, the 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 native medicines for that part of the that village among the water
1: um, and that one oh just cures Kiri in no time. Um, I, I love the way that um, you know she has a seizure because it gives Jake an excuse to phone his old buddies up to come over with their kind of human medicine. Yeah, which means that you know that can drive the plot forward. It's kind of it feels yes. like a very sort of you know a grindy obvious you know, take a step forward with the plot moment here. And then as soon as those guys turn up with their human medicine, yeah. you know, they're there for literally 15 seconds and then they're kind of shoved back yeah. out again. And that... you told, oh, no, no, we have much better medicine. And than
0: that. that whole scene, I think, was in there just to get radar on the boat so that Korich and his guys could track them to the yeah. village, right? I mean, it's, yeah. it was it was such a contrivance um,
1: and cliched upon that. I mean, it's just... oh. Oof. Unbearable. Yeah, can you? It could work, but you know, you—I don't know. It's a shame that it's, um, yeah, it's so transparent. It could have been a whole, done, done a little bit more subtly. Yeah. Oh, good. Well, uh, as we were saying, Avatar, <laughs> where water is made, one point seven billion dollars, <laughs> probably cross two billion dollars in the next two weeks. Uh, let's have a break, and we will come back and discuss a completely different film about uh, struggling to survive underneath water. Um, So we'll come back and talk about The Abyss in a minute. So, we here at the Two Real Cinema Club are proud to launch our new YouTube channel, which is called Please like and subscribe and ring the notification bell. We hope you'll like and subscribe to Please like and subscribe and ring the notification (laughs) bell. And when you do subscribe, make sure you ring the notification bell so that when we upload any new videos to Please Like and Subscribe and Ring the Notification Bell, you'll be notified immediately so that you can like and subscribe. Please like and subscribe and ring the notification bell. We'll be making high quality videos about liking, subscribing and about ringing the notification bell. Three topics at the very heart of most YouTube content today. How many fingers does the like icon have? Does subscribing without liking break the YouTube algorithm? Exactly how loud is the notification bell? You'll find videos like these and more all at please like and subscribe and ring the notification bell and you'll only need to watch 12 ads for Grammarly and six pleads to like and subscribe before you can see them. We really hope that you'll like, subscribe and ring that bell at please like and subscribe and ring the notification bell. And if the channel is as successful as we hope it will be, we'll be launching a new channel in the spring called Without Any Further Ado Let's Get Into It. So, please like and subscribe and ring the notification bell. And now, without any further ado, let's get into it.
0: thank you for liking subscribing and ringing the (laughs) notification bell we are back uh to talk about an earlier james cameron feature on this deep dive of his films um the Abyss, 1989. it's Coming off the success of The Terminator, um, this is based on a short story that he wrote as early as age 16. That might explain some things. Um, apparently, he went to a lecture about deep sea diving experiments with a breathing fluid, and that does figure prominently in the um, yeah in the film, um, which was uh, filmed uh, in part at an uncompleted nuclear power station. I guess like a nuclear reactor. Um, in a tank so large it took four days to fill. Um, um, so they were still, I guess, decorating it while it was being filled. Um, but 40% of the principal photography happened underwater. I think there was a Mm. a lake nearby and then another tank somewhere else. So they were filming in a couple of different locations. Um, there was no end of, uh, uh, near drowning anecdotes (laughs) in, um, uh, in the making of the film. And, um, the cast all trained as divers for weeks and weeks and weeks, and they all have these horror stories about, like, nearly drowning or not uh, <laughs> b- being able to breathe properly and um, all sorts of stories about uh, how hellish the shoot was. Um, well, let's just get into it, I guess. huh? Jimmy, do you have, do you have anything you want to say before we, we go?
1: Because this is going to be a ride. Um, the only thing I will say is, that, uh, um, as I was saying before the break, so I read this book, The Futurist. Oh, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, of course and uh, the, the, the chapter about the making of the abyss is fascinating but you do get a very strong impression that um, James Cameron is someone who you know, ha- you know has a very strong vision and he has an enormous amount of energy but he is not easy to work for yeah or with. <laughs> yeah um, and you know and, and, uh, maybe that kind of shows in the film or at least you know this is, this is a film about hardship and I think you know some of the hardship is not acting in this film oh. Protagonist
0: is Bud Brigman, played by Ed Harris. Um I think it's kind of his story quite clearly. Um, Ed Harris uh, certainly complained about making the film in some quotes that I read. Uh, And (laughs) Mary Elizabeth Mastrantonio plays his wife, Lindsay Brigman. She doesn't like to be called Mrs. Brigman. Uh, I loved Chris (laughs) Elliott as Ben Dix. It's a small role, but just to see, again, both of these films have comic actors just miscast. Uh, Chris Elliott has a small role as a Navy, um, I don't know, radar reader or something like that. So it starts out. There's a nuclear submarine, the USS Montana, um, and I got to say that Montana is a landlocked, mountainous state. That's its name implies <laughs> that Montana mountain. Um, but it goes down when it it encounters some sort of mysterious disturbance. But it's uh, they can rule out it's not a Soviet craft. Um, the sub does uh, the Montana, I believe, has a super, uh, nuclear warhead on it. So the Navy sends some uh, big guys and a team of Navy SEALs in to investigate. Um, they want to figure out what happened to this sub and um, probably get the the warhead out of there. Um, but they will commandeer um, Bud Brigman's. Uh, he has this underwater oil drilling uh, operation uh, called uh, it's called Deep Core. I think yeah, the Deep Core crew. Deep Core, yeah, yeah. So it's this sort of submersible oil rig that his wife. Oddly enough, or just just a coincidence, coincidence. Lindsay has designed this, um, so she's going to be uh, on the brig as well, and that puts... Um well, husband and sort of estranged wife together in uncomfortably close quarters. Um, he's the toughest nails on and off again husband. Um, he's messy. In fact, he says as much. He says, hey, guys, clean this place up. It's beginning to look my, like my apartment. Um, <laughs> and then Lindsay, his wife, is the organized and ambitious one. And she says, I put four years of my life into this rig. So she designed it. And it's just this expository dialogue that we get from James Cameron films, apparently. Um not very subtle um the head navy seal i got to talk about coffee um because he has the biggest mustache <laughs> and jimmy you and i know we're veterans of uh of uh, analysis and characterization i think the the intended characterization here is that this is the guy with the biggest mustache <laughs> And as such, he's the kind of guy that would intentionally grow the biggest mustache, um, and he will need to be brought down eventually. So he's the bad guy, I think, Uh, kind of the the key antagonist in this cramped space. Uh, So the Navy SEALs are along for the ride with these sort of, I guess they're like oil oil drillers. Um, There's a word for that, which will come back to me later on. Anyway... This is a deep sea oil uh, drilling, and it's they 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 just the submarine sort of conveniently goes down very close to where their operation is. So they are sort of enlisted to help the navy to get uh, the dead passengers out of this um, uh, out of this sunken sub. Um, talking a little bit more about characterization, there's another crew member named Hippie, and he apparently eats chocolate bars all the time. And he he has a pet rat that he kisses. So this is uh, (laughs) Cameron-type visual characterization. Uh, So... um... It's interesting because the rat is, this is an uncomfortable scene. The rat is taken from Hippie at one point, and this Navy SEAL sort of doctor type, uh, he sort of demonstrates this this fluid that allows you to breathe in water by drowning the rat. It's a harrowing <laughs> kind of scene, but eventually the rat stops sort of struggling because the fluid's been added to the water where he's trying to drown the rat, and the rat can breathe. It's amazing. Um, and it sort of foreshadows what we might see later on. Um, Mm. the two teams together, the oil rigs and the oil riggers and the um, Navy SEALs sort of go to investigate the sub, but it becomes pretty clear that the SEALs are really not that interested in recovering bodies. It's kind of a harrowing scene again, where you see all these sort of dead bodies flowing around, floating around. Um, But the Navy SEALs aren't uh, particularly interested in helping them or saving them. They are really there for this warhead um, that's in the Montana. Uh, The stakes are... Inelegantly raised because there's a there just happens to be a major hurricane approaching the site, the Cubans and the Soviets are rattling sabers with the Americans in a new missile crisis, and the guy now in charge—that's Coffee, remember the big mustache—he's in charge of the warhead. Um, and he's obviously the least shaven and the most mustachioed but he's also going crazy <laughs> due to the effects of deep deep sea diving which they've sort of illustrated very uh bluntly and directly that uh, he's starting to shake his hands and there are a lot of um, scenes where you just see him looking at his hand and it's shaking <laughs> um and then also the stakes are high because i don't know if i mentioned it this happens very deep in the ocean and uh, in, in the caribbean so it's um Just sort of this perfect storm of all sorts of uh, uh, the worst things possible happening in in one moment. Uh, This hurricane comes, it sort of rips the cranes off this support ship above the Deep Core. It damages the Deep Core uh, rig, sort of drags it down towards this abyss. And, oh, the nuclear warhead is now on board because the Navy SEALs sort of dragged it into uh, the the Deep Core, uh, almost like a corpse in a body bag. So they did recover it. Um, so the thing that's not that prominent in this film that I thought would be more prominent is this alien presence uh, down at the bottom of the ocean there. It it comes in the form of lights and these sort of jellyfish that start to appear for, for Lindsay uh, at first. And then the deep, the deep Core crew starts to see it. Um, they're visited by this alien at one point in this sort of serpent stream of water that plays a... Sort of like a game of mirror with Lindsay reflecting her face. It's kind of an interesting scene. But she does something that we saw Dr. Gower do recently in It's a Wonderful Life. She decides to sort of dip her finger into it and then taste (laughs) the water. And that's how she confirms that it was uh, uh, seawater. So this creature at one point, these aliens at one point are like jellyfish or just light. And then at another point, there's sort of this stream of seawater that can come in and, and mirror them. So again, it's like... James Cameron does this thing where he sort of gives himself perhaps too many options in terms of how to bring <laughs> characters to life. I mean, what are they really? Because we're going to see a different version of the aliens later on. Uh, Coffee, he still has the biggest mustache. He drops the deep core. He traps them in this compartment down in, the, in what's left of their uh, rig. He wants to go off and do something with a warhead. He's going to th- drop it into the abyss, I believe. Is, Jimmy, is that what he was doing? What was he doing with the Warriors?
1: I think so. I, I, th- I. My understanding was that he was worried that um, the Soviets yeah. were going to get their hands okay. on a U.S. nuclear submarine. So his orders were okay. to prevent it falling into the hands of the Soviet Union, blow it blow up. up. Okay. That kind of makes sense now. Yeah.
0: Um, Bud and Lindsay who have been sort of on again off again They're very um, contentious as a couple But uh, there's obviously a lot of love there But um, they get into a submersible And th- I wouldn't recommend this if you're in a submersible They start using it kind of as a weapon of, I don't know, we have the bumper cars at the you know the carnivals and the fairs Where you can just <laughs> s- intentionally smash into another vehicle That's what they start doing um, And it proves that only the power of love can annihilate the biggest moustaches <laughs> that, that was the message I got. Uh, Lindsay nearly dies because she hasn't drunk that magic fluid to breathe air and water. So um, Bud has to get her back to the what's left of sort of the deep core station, And uh, but with love and persistence and light CPR um, <laughs> of her non-loving, unestranged husband, Bud, she comes back to life. And I was taught, Jimmy, you're a medical guy.
1: I was taught that you basically have to break ribs to do CPR correctly. You, is that correct? You do, yeah. yeah. But apparently, the actors' union objects to that. Okay, so he, okay. There you go. So, so you have to bend bend your elbows when you're on a film set. He's
0: a little light on the on the on the on the CPR, and I think uh, <laughs> it's more his love. That's what it is. It's the salve of love that really cures her. Uh, Bud ultimately has to go on this ridiculous uh, dive down. I think at one point, seventeen thousand feet or something like that. So he's miles and miles. Uh, Kilometers and kilometers down there. Um, He has to deactivate the lost warhead, but he's saved by the jellyfish, which now look kind of like a pink E.T. driving a jellyfish. It looks like he has control of the jellyfish. Um, He's this very embryonic looking alien. And I'm just going to say this. Deus ex machino numero (laughs) de. Because we saw it in the first film. Uh, The aliens are managed to float the entire deep core and all aboard it to the surface. And then that sort of captures or also lifts all the ships that are hovering around on the surface. Um, I think there's kind of this can of worms because the alien civilization surfaces at the end, but Cameron cuts to Bud uh, and Lindsay who are reunited and kissing and Lindsay, Finally she's okay with being called Mrs. Brigman at the mm. end <laughs> So that's yeah That's what I saw Maybe you saw something differently And I have to say that this was the What did we decide like the two hour
1: and It was two hours and twenty minutes I think Yeah so there's two versions of this film isn't it It's like two hours ten and a two hour fifty yeah. version So I, um, I did look up So I also saw the two hour ten okay, good. We're, version okay. I did look up the extended yeah. version Yeah. Um, and that um, it contains more sort of character detail for the crew of the Deep Core, yeah. and there's a, a much longer third act oh. um, where the actions of the aliens are uh, more motivated, more explored. Okay, so I think that's kind of largely what is missing from the the shorter version. Okay, I don't think the film is is too short at two hours no. ten. No, I have a bit of a confession, which is that I really like the Abyss from 1989. Yeah. Um, I think the, th- the third act, I will admit, has problems and it is kind of a bit sentimental and it is a bit mawkish and it is kind of also a little bit truncated and you know, it seems um, uh, it's, it's difficult to really understand why the aliens do what they do when we're given so little information yeah. about you know, what they're making their judgments on in the short version of the movie. But um, I think Bud and Lindsay in this film are great actors. Ed Harrison, Mary and Elizabeth... Uh, Mr Antonio you know two terrific actors doing great performances for the material they've been given I think they are a great screen couple they are a great team and to me they feel really quite authentic you know they kind of they bicker and they argue but also you know they appreciate each other's strengths you know they work together like you know real adults I think it's a great performance I I find the scene you know even now even though I know what is coming because it's my second or third time I think I've seen the film I still find it quite moving that scene where uh, Lindsay has to drown and Bud has to you know, drag her through the freezing water and then try and resuscitate her yeah. and it looks like it's not going to pan out and then in the end it does. I I think it's, you know, it's a good scene, well made and quite moving. I think there's a lot to enjoy in this film.
0: It, it It's nice that he j- doesn't just leave her to die. I got to say that. <laughs> As a husband, I mean, he he works on her. He definitely, after, the whole crew g- gives up, he keeps going. Um, but it does, oh uh, yeah, it, it it's a little cliched. It's almost like the kiss is the final thing that does it and, uh, she revives. Um, yeah, I, I'm not going to say that I loved it, and I can't go back and watch the longer version. I finally got it on, on DVD here, and I'll, I'll look at bonus <laughs> features, but I can't look at it. But why, what I do understand is that um, in the longer version, I believe the aliens um, show him a number of videos uh, he shows they sh- they're able to show him how I guess barbaric Earthlings are and 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 yeah. how how the war is so awful and and such, so I it, that would give me a lot more context for it. I just felt like the aliens were totally underutilized as a result. As you said, it, they, it becomes kind of confusing what their motivations are. Why would they save this guy and all the military boats that are up above if they? you know, or if they feel threatened by him, or if, they, if these guys are destroying the ocean, if they're going to, you know, create oil spills and, and leave their nuclear subs down there. So uh, it, it's problematic. And I, I thought this film was much more about um, their occupation down there. And you, know, you, you sort of get a sense of it. He shows you this big, is it a spaceship that can move? Is it a civilization and a culture or a city or what? A um, lot of it just leaves a lot of unanswered questions. And it It happens at the very end. I mean, most of the alien stuff is in the last 10 minutes or something like that.
1: 10 minutes, yeah,
0: absolutely. So it just just feels like uh, he, you know, I don't want to encourage him to make longer films, but it seems like he had a bigger story to tell here. He didn't tell what story he had um, terribly efficiently. So um, we're left with all these questions about what could have been a kind of cool film with these other creatures down below.
1: I'll I tell you what I think James Cameron is really good at and um, I think maybe he's slightly lost some of this skill in Avatar Way of Water but mm-hmm. in his earlier work so he, you know, he started out with the Terminator I mean he started out with Piranha too but I don't yeah. think anyone's um, I don't think he feels that, that film really belongs to him started out with the Terminator he made Aliens um, at the same time that he was writing the script I think for Terminator he was also writing the script for Rambo First Blood Part 2 yeah, um, and he also he wrote Stranger Days, a Ray Fiennes film. I don't know whether you've seen that. I saw that once many years ago. Um, the thing that he is really, really good at um, is setting up and paying off. Rambo, you know, it's it's a you know pretty racist, vile, violent, unpleasant, um, nasty, cliched film, mm-hmm. but it's tremendously efficiently written. Every single thing. Appears on screen. Appears on screen for a reason. Mm-hmm. Nothing is wasted. Everything comes back. Everything is reincorporated, and it feels much the same in this film. That I feel it's it's pacey and tremendously efficient. So um, when you talk about um, hippy, who's the character who has the yeah. you know the, the the chocolate and the rat, you know he um, we see you know one scene maybe where he has this pet rat, and then um, then that rat you know is. Is um, used for two further plot points later on It's really efficiently reincorporated He puts the rat in a bag And then you know, he makes a bit of a mistake Of trying to rescue the rat And um, yeah. uh, you know, and putting himself in danger when the, um, when the deep core floods And then later on you know, The rat is used to, to demonstrate This breathing fluid yeah. Which will then be reincorporated Later on in the movie yeah. So you know, everything um, is there for a reason Nothing is wasted
0: yeah, for some ridiculous reasons. I, I, I think you could also look at those as being <laughs> just amazing contrivances that he puts to use for himself. I mean, he definitely, yeah, he, he puts things in there, but it's it feels very unnatural most of the time to me. I I think he's great at shooting in small moving spaces. I think the, yeah. that's the incredible stuff here. The submarine stuff is harrowing. Um, a lot of the stuff in deep core, where he's sort of just buzzing through tunnels with a camera and, and characters are going both directions. He's, he's fantastic with that. He's very good on visuals. Um, and I feel... I have some empathy for him. I feel a little bit sorry for him because um, sort of the reward for originating all this cutting-edge ed- cutting technology is people laughing at how it looks 33 years later, you know, like, Uh, I mean, he's, he's really furthered filmmaking in terms of, um, underwater stuff in particular with Titanic and, and in, uh, Wavewater, um, and these, you know, these actors who are going through these intense breathing, uh, practices in order to be able to breathe underwater, um, and Deep Core has great technology until it has paper maps and charts for the ocean floor and VCR tapes <laughs> and chunky television. So, mm, yeah. So it's 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 very interesting that he, you know, I think a lot of people would not watch a film like this because just in terms of the technology, it, it seems very dated already. But at the time, it was super advanced, and he's the guy who almost single handedly gets it going in that direction. Same thing for Avatar. Um, so you sort of you, 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 he gets laughs, I think, uh, in the sense that uh, it, it, it's not techy enough now, but it was fantastic back then. So I think he's I think he's a, a a fault of his, I will say, is that I think he puts that technology in front of the story. Um, and it, it takes a backseat to good story writing and acting. I don't think he's a very good writer at all, and I think that comes off in sort of the blunt nature of the setups that you're talking about and also just that the dialogue is so bad and his direction of actors, I think, is generally so bad. It's very on-the-nose or very clichéd throughout. So I, I think in terms of shooting stuff, as like a a DP or as a, someone who really knows how to use visual effects and use camera movement and stuff, he's great, but in terms of like being a a really nuanced director um, or writer. I just don't think he has that. I
1: think he he could probably map out a story, but I don't think he should be writing scripts. Uh, I mean, you are right that there is quite a bit of exposition. But I think the film is, is, you know, it's pacey and that's part of the price maybe you pay for moving the story on. i tell you, from my previous viewings of this film, the scene that I most vividly remember is the scene of the drowning and the CPR But watching yes. it this time around I think the finest scene in this film mm-hmm. um, and I, I think it's A real show of filmmaking skill Is um, all the characters Watching a coil Appear uh, on the sea floor Out of a window mm-hmm. um, So the the, you know, the the moment in the story is when the crane That oh, yeah. brings the deep core Drilling rig up and down to the surface um, Has been knocked over by the storm and so the crane just falls into the water um and you know that the crane is directly above the the drilling rig so you know it's going to hit the rig but the the thing that precedes the train the the crane is the cable and you have all the characters just watching this cable mm-hmm. appear and loop around like a like a snake or a worm on the on the sea floor. Yep. and just this simple visual image is is uh really milked for all the suspense you can get out of it. I think it's really sort of skillful, a little bit of, of visual storytelling. Yeah. Brilliantly paced scene because, um, you know, spoilers, the crane doesn't land on the rig. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so you know, everyone breathes a sigh of relief. And then the crane very, very slowly tips over the edge of this undersea cliff and then starts to descend down into the abyss. And now where previously that cable was uh, a, a, like a herald of, of doom. Now instead it's going to be you know the cause of doom yeah. because you know the cable is still attached to the crane and it's going to pull the whole rig down into the abyss. Yeah. Just you know it's taking you know one simple sort of engineering physical fact and milking it for a you know great little bit of story. Yeah. I think that's just terrific. Yeah, right? yeah, I would give you that that is a good scene and it is well done. Um it's subtle
0: which much of the film is not. Um, here, here, I'm gonna I'm gonna talk to you about one sequence, one setup and payoff that I thought was um, more more typical of his style. I think. Um, Bud Brigman, I guess he works on the brig, right? He's a Brig man. Yeah, Bud yeah. Brigman, um, <laughs> subtle. Um, he and his wife Lindsay are, of course, having troubles, or the, I don't know if they're estranged, or separated or whatnot. So at one point, he throws his wedding ring into a toilet. Yeah. And then he goes back and fishes it out. And as a result, his hand is blue. His uh, ring finger, well, it's a whole, I guess his left hand, I think it was. I'm not sure where he wore the ring. Um, it's blue for the rest of the film,
1: the rest of the film. Yeah. yeah. OK.
0: So the payoff comes much later when he, he he fishes it out of the toilet, puts the ring back on his finger. And then he's struggling to keep one of these automatic doors, these vault doors from shutting. And um, he, he's able to do it. And you learn afterwards that one of the reasons he was able to do it is because the ring is actually instrumental in um,
1: holding the weight of the door on and not crushing his finger. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, it's 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 you know it's fairly elementary symbolism, yeah. but I think it's an exciting moment. I think it's fine. Oh, I have <laughs> such low, so much lower standards than you, don't I? <laughs>
0: <laughs> no, I just I mean I so that. We were talking about comic moments in Avatar. For me, that's a comic moment because it's... Jet. and and maybe I don't know that he wants it to be comic, but I'm laughing at that because I think it's just very... It's a very, very blunt
1: uh, uh, bit of, uh, of, of, I don't know, visual storytelling right there. It's just a little too blunt for me. I tell you what, it um, I think this film is enough to put you off uh, a life underwater. Yeah. Oh. The, the, you know, the sheer violence of the uh, the flooding scenes when the deep core kind of gets breached and chamber after chamber fills up with water, you know, it's really terrifying. I mean, that is proper horror. Yeah. Yeah. I hate it. Yeah, yeah. It does give you a real sensation of, you know, the claustrophobia and the fear yeah. and, you know, the sensation of how close you are to death. Yeah. Yeah. And I was almost wishing to be a bit more claustrophobic, at times it was um
0: because the deep core, they seem to have a lot of a number of different spaces. It's a little hard to get the architecture, without like a complete establishment early on. But um, yeah, that's frightening to me. And any one of those scenes where they're running out of an air pocket, you know, the water's getting higher and higher and people are pressing their heads to the ceiling to try and yes. gasp that last little bit of oxygen. I hate stuff like that. So <laughs> those are tense <laughs> moments. And yes, I would never get on a submarine. I would never go down in a submersible or anything like that. And I think he does communicate that fear very well. So
1: again, that's that movement in... in, in Tight spaces. It's an it's incredible. He's very good at that. I think it's you know a lovely scene when Bud and Lindsay are in that submarine because it, it fills up with water so fast. So I remember watching it this time around and being really surprised how quickly it fills up. Yeah. I was thinking it should be another couple of minutes in this in this in this scene, but no, it moves, you know, it cracks ahead at a really um you know good pace. Yeah. There's no waiting around. As, you know, I was never bored at any point during the Abyss. Yeah. And I'll tell you one other thing. Earlier on we were talking about how, for me, The Way of Water, the new Avatar yeah. film, is uncomfortably bright. Yeah. You know, everything is so brightly and I think so evenly lit. Uh, people, people have commented on how incredibly realistic it looks, but to me I think it looks excessively evenly lit, mm. so it finds it, I find it difficult to imagine that it's really real. Yeah. Um, whereas The Abyss um, properly enjoys the darkness that it's set in you know, the screen is very dark for most of the time in the film. I mean, it uses that kind of noir technique of, um, you know, if you don't like the set, then you don't need to build the set. So I think, you know, they're keeping it, you know, simple by just, minimizing the lighting yeah. um,
0: it is it's it's good it's wise too because I, th- I think if you if you light it more if you light it brighter uh, you're gonna see a lot of the stuff in the background that you know remember they're in a nuclear reactor they're in a, a small probably a fairly small yeah, lake or yeah. tank so you've got to go dark I think otherwise it's not gonna be believable and as a result you end up with this really believable look I agree with you yeah I, I, um, I would the scene yeah. where Bud and Lindsay are in that that in that capsule and it's filling up with water didn't you want to yell at the screen and say stop talking you're wasting oxygen. <laughs> one of you puts on the mask. The other one climbs on back and holds the breath and you get back to the deep, the, the deep core. I mean, it was frustrating. It was frustrating.
1: It was a bit confusing how he, you know, he waited for her to drown and die yeah. before
0: taking her body out.
1: You know, why not just get a head start? Maybe just, just go now?
0: Considering that you know they're they're sort of on the verge of reuniting, really. I mean, their love. They've just killed the guy with the moustache, and you know they're basically be- ready to be falling back in love again. And instead, they're yelling at each other in the therapy session when the thing is the, the compartments filling up with water and they're <laughs> suffocating.
1: Okay, well let's we we're, we we're, we're gonna do we've got one new feature, and then we're going to go to a synthesis, okay. which is um, yeah. you know bringing the bringing the two films together. But before that yeah. new feature, mm. uh, we're going to play a game. The game is called. Who am I? Ooh. Who am I? So uh, my theory, I'm not the only person with this theory. Yeah. My theory is that we go to the cinema because we want to see ourselves on the screen, but ourselves, you know, but different ourselves in a different world or ourselves not necessarily made perfect, but made different um, in either of the two films that we watched this week. Mm-hmm. Could you see yourself if you had to see yourself? Who are you going to be? In either film, yeah, in either film, in either film. Hmm. And I, this is not fair because I've already prepared an oh, answer. Oh, oh. So you know, I know what I'm going to say. So <laughs> I knew this was coming. No, I... so I'm already putting you on the spot. All right, all
0: right. Um, I can't pronounce his name. I would be the older brother. Is it Netayam?
1: Oh, I think I would. What, like the the, the good brother? The good brother,
0: and in part because I I do like to follow the rules and and. Uh, obey my parents and such so I like to consider myself a bit more even keeled and calm so I would be him but also you expect us to believe any of that yeah yeah absolutely <laughs> no it's the truth um, but more so that's not the reason I would want to be him I would want to be him because he gets killed before the film is over <laughs> and I wanted to be killed before the film was over too but um, furthermore do you guys have human composting in uh, the u k now
1: oh my god uh I'm sure it probably exists yeah. but I'm not sure that I was aware of it before about ten seconds ago
0: so I, I've decided I'd like to be human human composted i guess um Ooh. yeah, it's actually it uses much less energy than um uh, cremation and um There's this wonderful scene. I like when when they finally say goodbye to him, he sort of just disappears into these little tentacles of coral or something like that at the bottom of the ocean. It just looks like he's going to be taken back by um, these uh, stalagmites that are just waving around and he's just going to be reincorporated into the ocean, which, you know, I I understand that he's a forest person and that's kind of a little uh, inappropriate for him, but I just love the (laughs) fact that he was just going to be absorbed into nature and, you know, moved on into the universe. So I loved that. So I think... In part because he dies. That's the one. <laughs> he dies and he has a brilliant uh, uh,
1: composting bit. So I'm going to say um, Fred, my, my, my pick is um, entirely different. I think okay. if I see myself anywhere on screen, yeah. um, I think I am Colonel Quaritch. Oh. <laughs> the, like the bad guy in uh, Avatar Way of Water. Wow. Only because there are at least two, maybe three scenes where whatever is happening on screen, he is drinking a cup of tea. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> and I can I can strongly empathize with the need to you know, have a nice warm cup of tea just available at any point. Oh uh, uh, that's you know, great. maybe you're, maybe you're kind of maybe you're trying to to bomb some locals yeah. or uh yes search for a um a renegade yeah. but always have a cup of tea on hand. That's my that's my motto. It's
0: also a very funny bit of uh, characterization because he's a hoorah uh, marine, right? Tough guy and uh <laughs> Hard Scrabble kind of character and drinking tea, yeah.
1: Always time for a cup of tea.
0: It, it's interesting. There's a there's a, on the in the abyss. There's this one navy officer who's just eating a sandwich, and I always wonder, well, what what, <laughs> what are you trying to tell me with that characterization? He's the guy who eats <laughs> sandwiches. <laughs> At tense
1: moments, he it's always a, has a sandwich. A character revealed through action. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's screenwriting <laughs> one hundred and one. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, let's bring the bring the try, try and bring the films together. So. Oh. With, uh, I'm tempted to do a bit of a synthesis. I think, having watched these two films, yeah. um, I don't think anyone would be surprised to watch these two films and then be told, you know, they're made by the same guy. Not at all, yeah. Clearly, you know, James Cameron, he's the same filmmaker, interested in the same thing. So, you know, he is interested in family, certainly interested in spectacle, Um I've written he's interested in motivated action so you know things happen and they happen for a reason it's my my kind of point earlier about you know reincorporation things are set up and they are paid off you know things happen for a reason he's interested in you know man versus nature mm-hmm. he's interested in water he's really interested in water really interested in water I mean you would watch these two films and then you you know, you'd, you'd have to ask yourself who else could possibly have made titanic yeah. um yeah um but uh I think yeah, the the abyss demonstrates his skill at kind of reincorporation. So, yeah, well, I, th- I think most of the elements there are present for a reason. You know, the, um, when um, Catfish, who's like the big burly um, yeah uh, core member, he kind of earlier on in the movie he he's boasting about you. You see this fist; they used to call this the hammer. And then you know later on, the hammer comes back and it it punches coffee out. Um, so everything, even you know those little feed lines, they're all there for a reason. In Avatar, it's, you know, the reincorporation isn't quite as clear because I think some of the elements that are going to be reincorporated are being going to, re, going to get reincorporated in another film. Yeah. He's selling seeds for the next films and not paying it all off in this film. So that makes, makes the way of water feel kind of more sloppy and loose. Um, and I think the other thing that um, James Cameron has kind of forgotten since 1989 is how to turn off the lights. I think they, you know, all the darkness in the abyss makes it cinematically, cinematographically, and thematically a better film, I think. Um I think, you know, there's more darkness in on screen and in the characterisation. I think both of the films are unsubtle. You're right. And they are both kind of moralizing. But I think the, the the characters in the abyss, well you I know that you feel they're on the nose. I think they're better written than the characters in Avatar. Oh, much better. I think they are more moving more moving, more human uh, more understandable um, and also kind of watching The Abyss I didn't feel that the outcome of the movie was nearly as inevitable um, certainly watching it first time round I don't think I guessed that all oh, aliens saved the day in the final 10 minutes yeah. um, whereas I do feel a little bit like um, just from looking at the poster I could have taken a reasonable guess at the the story for The Way of Water and it turned out to be right yeah. but I don't know do you, do you feel the two films do you think Cameron has learned more or forgotten more in the thirty-three years between these movies. He's definitely forgotten something. I'm I'm really happy that you've
0: focused on the 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 visual filmmaking um, and the lighting because you're right with the with the screen being so dark in the abyss. That means that the characters get properly lit, and it really means it brings a light to everything that's really important in the in the in the frame. Um, Whereas you know, I saw a, a, the Avatar film, Way of Water, on a fairly big screen, so you're looking all over the screen, because there is just crap mm-hmm. happening everywhere, and it, it makes it hard to focus, and that film loses focus a lot more often than than The Abyss does. The Abyss is actually quite disciplined in terms of the storytelling. It's, again, there's not a ton of storytelling, um, and he, I think he introduces a couple extraneous things with the whole, the next missile crisis going on, and the storm coming on. I think he's got a lot of things that are, sort of, detract from the story, so he does make detours, but it's Compared to Way of Water, it's way more disciplined. Um, for me, I think both of them are just, again, I can't get around this this intentional epic nature of the film. He's trying to make something huge, and as a result, you're, you're never going to pull it off, I don't think. If you try and make something that's just absolutely great and huge and long and meaningful, he's setting the goal, I think, a little high for himself. Um, but the themes that I see a lot are sort of either military or maybe even less... Uh, or I guess more generally, men causing problems, humans <laughs> causing problems, um, and not being able to solve them ultimately. These the fact that aliens come in or a, a whale that has this greater intelligence than uh, humans come in um, at the the climaxes of both films really tells me that um, we're causing a lot of problems that we can't fix, and I think that's the the big theme um, in both film both films. It sort of carries through and. Um, that we need help, as opposed to, <laughs> and we do. I understand that. Uh, but again, it, it's it's sort of uh, extraterrestrial help. It's uh, extra human help. If it's needed. It's not. It's not. These are not problems that we, even though we've caused, we can't um, address them ourselves. And that's ultimately kind of pessimistic, I think. So I think those are the connections that I see more than anything else. Um, and I th- yeah, I think he's learned a lot. Again, technologically, he's really pushed the envelope and he's done some great things that I think are probably going to be utilized by filmmakers to come and, and, and the fil- future filmmaking in general. Um, but I think maybe he's lost a little bit of his sense of story. I think, I mean, you were talking about the Rambo script as being better or Terminator. Um, I think now he's all about the visuals. That's far more important. So it's like, uh, you know, tech first Visual effects first, and,
1: and story and characters come later, and I think that's a mistake. Yep, uh, which, which we obviously agree is the wrong way around. Yep. I'll tell you one other thing that has changed yep. since 1989. The Abyss, I think, did not make money. Oh, that's right, yeah. Um, yeah, so it was kind of a flop, actually. Yeah, it performed you know, really quite poorly. Um, and Avatar Way of Water, $1.7 billion. Yeah. Did I mention that? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is a shame, because I, I think The Abyss is the better film. I think it is the better film. By far, yeah. Well, we have got just time for also playing at this theatre. So, um, seen anything else over the over the, uh, the last couple of weeks? Yeah. What else have you seen? Absolutely.
0: Well, you had a great piece on the popcorn counter about life happening when you're on holiday. Ah. And uh, life happened. I saw a lot of stuff. In fact, I saw. The first part of one Ryan Johnson film, and then the second half, the second part of another Ryan Johnson film. And it, it didn't <laughs> make one film uh, by Ryan Johnson in the end. So we saw the first part of Brick.
1: Oh wow, great! I love Brick.
0: Yeah, we. I didn't get through them. We we watched the first <gasps> half. Um, stopped watching it. It was a little incomprehensible. The dialogue was um, uh, inaccessible in some ways. Um, and then it was one of these things where, you know, you pay three bucks, you're watching it on, on, I think it was on Amazon prime. Um, and then we never went back to it and thought, do we want to pay three bucks again? I mean, it really comes down to that level of decision making. Um, and then with some friends, I walked in halfway through the glass onion film, which is the, the new one on Netflix, I believe, and watched that. So I saw pieces of Ryan Johnson films, um, wasn't particularly happy with either one. I saw um, (laughs) saw Jermaine Clement in uh, Taika Waititi's uh, uh, 2014, What We Do in the Shadows. It's this sort of Uh. vampire mock entry which I thought was brilliant. I love that. So that was great, and that's probably the reason why we didn't go back to the other films. Um, We just started watching... Pam and Tommy, which is a limited series over here. It's on Hulu. Oh, I think. yeah. It's about their infamous uh, sex tape, uh, to Tommy Lee and Pamela Lee Anderson. Um, um, from a guy named Robert Siegel, who's a really good writer and he's a creator of uh, some, some good programs. Um, and then yesterday we saw a documentary. It's called all the beauty and the bloodshed. I don't know if this is in the UK or not. It's about a photographer named Nan Golden, um, who made quite a name for herself. Um, in photography between like the late 70s and she's still working. Um, But also about her campaign against the Sackler family who um, owned basically outright um, Purdue drugs, Purdue Pharma, I guess. And they created Mm. um, OxyContin, which has caused so many deaths and so much destruction here in the United States and abroad, and she's basically um, getting their names off of um, places like the the Portrait Gallery, the yeah the National mm. Gallery and the Portrait Gallery in in London. I think the Tate has since um, taken their name down. So they they basically art wash all their money by um, having funded Guggenheim uh, buildings and wings, and as well as um, the Metropolitan Metropolitan Museum in New York City. So. Very good documentary because it talks about her political activism as well as um, her photography. So it's, it's sort of like a, a, a documentary about her life, but really focuses on her excellent efforts to bring the Sackler family down.
1: Artwash, artwashing, I'd never heard that well, before. Well, I don't know. I think that's what I called it. I don't know if that's what it is or not, but uh, yeah. Oh man, it's got to be called that. It should be called that. That's good. Yeah. How about yourself? What have you seen? Uh, nothing nearly as highbrow, but okay. we did watch uh, Strange World... Which is a uh, new Disney animation film. It got a very brief theatrical release yeah. um, in the UK, I think, and around the world. Disney largely sent it out to die, I think, um, yeah. and then it came onto streaming very quickly after like four weeks, something like that. Um, so, written by um, Guy Nagoyan, who wrote Riot and the Last Dragon, which is another fairly disappointing. Disney animation Mm. directed by Don Hall, who made Moana and Big Hero 6, which are two outstandingly good recent Disney animation films. Strange World, another bit of a dud, unfortunately. Oh, no. Which which is a shame. It looked
0: cool and it was just recommended to me. Oh, was it? It Maybe just on a visual level. I mean, I loved the. We were talking about like Avatar with all these creatures that didn't make any sense, but Strange
1: World to me looked. Like intentionally surreal I mean it looked kind of creepy. I mean it is surreal And it's kind of a mixture of It's a little bit of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea yeah. Or Journey to the Centre of the Earth And it's a little bit of Fantastic Voyage And it kind of takes All these different influences To mix them together mm. The problem I have with it Is that the script Is extremely workmanlike Yeah um, And it feels like It's full of far too many scenes Of characters telling each other What's happening on screen Or yeah. explaining the story To each other Okay um, You know th- that That uh, I, what we would call the proper aim for a screenwriter, which is to tell a story through looks and glances, mm-hmm. you know, is not the rule in *Strange World*. Yeah. I'm afraid everything is spoken uh, boldly out loud using dialogue when it could have been done so much better with looks and glances. Um, you know, and I've, I've written about this on the blog before that uh, computer animation now is so capable and so subtle that you should be able to tell, you know, a, a sophisticated story without resorting to words at all. Yeah, um, but I. Wonder whether people simply lack the confidence for it. Mm-hmm. So it uh, looks great, bit of a miss in our house, unfortunately. Oh, bummer, bummer. Well, maybe I'll take it off my list. Yeah, of cross off your list. Watch the rest of Brick instead. That's what I would say. I might have oh. to go back to that.
0: Yeah, I think I will. Um, Glass Onion, uh <laughs> it didn't. It didn't hit. Didn't hit for me. Sorry. Okay. Maybe if I'd seen the first half, but the second half did. You know, you'd think that's where you're going to see all the, the good stuff. In the conclusion and the climax it's just
1: an excuse to break a lot of glass sculptures as far as I could tell so. okay I didn't particularly enjoy Knives Out either yeah. so uh, it doesn't sound like it's going to go high on my list okay no. so this has been the Two Real Cinema Club um, we're emerging back up uh, from uh, Journey Deep to the Bottom of the Sea mm-hmm. we will be back uh, next week with a bit of a chat at the Popcorn Counter uh, so we'll see you then yeah. thanks for joining us right. we'll see you next time thanks get a fresh, breath of fresh air <laughs> Scientist. Just breathe! <laughs> <laughs> and we'll
0: be back there.